So of course we're picking up with um, where we were with uh, the visit of Jethro to Moses. And here we have the day after Moses' father-in-law Jethro eats bread with the elders of Israel. In Exodus 18, 13-27, we see the origin of the Old Testament nation of Israel's judicial system. And we're going to study this section in two parts tonight. First, we're going to examine the passage itself and see what's happening in the actual text. And then we're going to examine its application to our lives here in Barbados in the 21st century. So let's just jump right in and look at Exodus uh, 18, 13 to 27, and see first Jethro's advice. And first, I want you to know that it is Jethro, a Midianite and a brand new convert to the worship of Yahweh, who is the mastermind, humanly speaking, behind the judicial system of Israel. It is Jethro who is the uh, human instrument in terms of inaugurating and instituting the judicial system in the Old Testament nation of Israel. Of course, God condones and sanctions the suggestions of Jethro, otherwise they never would have been implemented. But on a human level, it is Jethro who is the brains of the operation, so to speak. Though he's a Gentile, and though he is a new convert, he comes to Moses with some advice which proves to be quite helpful. Imagine if Moses had written off Jethro's advice a priori simply because he was a Midianite instead of an Israelite or because he was a new convert. In passing, I just want to point out the obvious uh, application that truth is truth no matter where it comes from. And so we should, by implication, we should be prepared to listen to anyone and everyone who comes to us with advice and weigh the advice on its own merits rather than on our assessment of the source. We shouldn't just say, well, I'm not gonna to listen to so-and-so because of who they are. Just listen to what they have to say and consider it. It would be unlikely that this brand new convert from Midian would institute a judicial system in Israel, but nevertheless, Moses listens to him, he has a good idea, and God condones and sanctions it, and Moses implements it. Now, what does Jethro actually advise? Well, broadly, he suggests that Moses delegate some responsibility to others. He suggests that Moses share the load. More specifically, he suggests that Moses look for men who have three qualities. And we'll look at each of those three qualities now, and all three are found in verse 21. Three qualities of the men who are to become judges in Israel. First, the men are to be able, that is, the men are to be competent. There's really no sense in delegating a task to somebody that is incompetent for that particular task. Whatever the task, it's common sense that the person to whom we delegate a task should actually be able to do it. Otherwise, it's a waste of time and energy and possibly even money. For example, if you delegate to someone who is colorblind and illiterate, the job of going into the basement and getting some red paint and painting the bar red, 
but my man can't tell the difference between red and green, and you can't paint the cans to see which is which. He may end up painting the bar green. And you've wasted a lot of time, and a lot of energy, and a lot of money. So obviously, someone must be competent for the task delegated in order for the delegation to make sense. In Exodus 18, the men delegated with the task of adjudicating disputes among the Israelites had to be men who understood God's statutes and laws and were skillful in making application. So the people of Israel would come to know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. That's an implication of verse 20. That was the task that Moses was going to share. So if Moses was going to share that task, then the men would have to be able and competent in understanding God's statutes and laws and applying them to everyday situations. Now again, in passing one more brief observation, the people of Israel obviously had some of God's statutes and rules. Here in Exodus 18, before the giving of the Ten Commandments at Sinai in Exodus 20, before all of the other laws that followed, obviously Israel already had some laws. So what happened at Sinai was not that God gave laws for the first time, but rather that God codified, organized, and expanded laws in a manner suitable for a nation state. As he brought the children of Israel into covenantal relationship to him and constituted them as a nation. But God's law was already in the world all the way from Adam and Eve. And there were principles upon which people were to live. And uh, people were to do certain things and refrain from doing other things according to God's statutes and rules. So even before Sinai, theft and adultery were wrong. Idolatry and Sabbath breaking and the like. These things were already prohibited before Sinai. And people had various disputes which could be adjudicated by appealing to God's statutes and laws already. Just note that because obviously that really undermines the idea that the Ten Commandments were only for the people of Israel. Anyway, back to the main point. The men who were to be appointed as judges in Israel had to be able. That is, they had to be competent. Moreover, they had to be men of character. Because it would do no good to have men as judges who knew full well what they ought to do, but didn't have the integrity to actually do it. The judges needed to be men who were not only able, but were also men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. That's in verse 21. The leaders of God's old covenant people were to be men both of competence and character. The necessity of this qualification is fairly obvious, so I won't belabor the point. The last thing I will point out about the men who were to become judges in Israel is that they were to be representative of the people as a whole. Imagine if every judge in the Barbados court system was from one family or one geographic area. That would be a recipe for a skewed justice system in the long term. Just as we wouldn't want every judge in Barbados to be a Brathwaite, or an Aline, no offense, or a Clark, or we wouldn't want each and every one to hail from Mackerel, St. Michael, or wherever else. If everyone had the same last name, or came 
from the same geographic area. You'd suspect that over time, the scales of justice would tip in favor of the family, tribe, parish, village, whatever, from which the judges came. And so Jethro suggests that the men be selected from all the people. Again, that's in verse 21. That they be chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. In other words, there were going to be judges on the bench, so to speak, from your parish, from your village, with your last name. So you could be sure that in your day in court, you're going to get a fair shake. The effect, when men of these three qualities are appointed as judges in Israel, men who are able, of good character, and representative of the people at large, the effect will be that not only will Moses be blessed, but the people themselves. Look at verse 18. The status quo was that the present situation was wearing out not only Moses, but also all the people. You and the people will certainly wear yourselves out. You and the people will certainly wear yourselves out. That fills out then what it means that the people stood around him from morning to evening. It means that basically there were long queues and people were showing up and waiting a long time and some people were there all day and probably had to be turned away until come back the next day. There's a backlog of court cases in Israel. <clears throat> people were not being seen in an efficient and timely manner. Moses simply wasn't able to treat to the people's needs in the ideal way because he simply didn't have the capacity. Both he and the people then, as a consequence, were being worn out. When judges are appointed, however, with character and competence from among all the people, look at verse 23. Jethro says to Moses, you will be able to endure and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So it's going to be good for Moses, obviously, because he's going to be less burdened, and it's going to be good for the people, because the backlog is going to be cleared away, and people will be able to be seen and heard in a timely and efficient manner, and get a fair arbitration in court. So far from being a threat to Moses, or far from being a threat to the people at large, a multiplicity of competent leaders with good character, chosen from among the people, would be a blessing to them. We do know in time, unfortunately, from reading the rest of our Old Testaments, that the leaders of Israel became more like shepherds who fed themselves instead of the sheep, the prophet Ezekiel says, and did not seek the lost, did not bring back the stray, did not bind up the injured, did not strengthen the weak, nor feed them in justice. But insofar as the judges would have conformed to these original qualifications and this original mandate, the leaders of Israel would have been a blessing to the existing, the new leaders of Israel would have been a blessing to the existing leadership and to the people as a whole. Therefore, the problem which arose in due time was not a plurality of leaders, but rather a deficiency in those leaders themselves. God's design 
in Exodus 18 was through Jethro to bless his people with a sufficient number of men from among them, competent and of good character in order that they would be adequately cared for. And indirectly to bless Moses by ensuring that he could remain in his role over the long haul without burning out. So that's what's actually happening in the passage we're studying tonight. What is its relevance to our lives in Barbados in the 21st century? Let's consider now some application. First, we see God's concern for and provision for shalom among his people. Shalom is more than a Jewish greeting. It's a term that denotes holistic well-being. Shalom is not a sufficient bank account balance alone, like if I have that, I have shalom. Nor is it a healthy body alone, like if I have that, I have shalom. Nor is it even a right relationship with God alone, like if I have that, I have shalom. Shalom is the well-being of a whole person, body and soul. And this is God's intention for his people. God's design involves suffering, sometimes here and now, yes, it's true, but it's intentionally temporary. Ultimately, God will bring about the perpetual and everlasting, holistic, in totality, well-being of his people both bodies and souls. And ultimately, that happens by faith in Jesus Christ. By faith in He who lived, died, and rose for us and for our salvation, we are pardoned for our sins, reckoned as righteous in God's eyes, and adopted into God's family. We will not live forever in chronic pain, We will not live forever under financial stress, nor in alienation from God, but rather the dwelling place of God will be with men, and God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. This is where it's all going. In Christ, we have the promise and sure hope of shalom, this holistic well-being, body and soul, because Christ's righteousness is ours, because he is our propitiation, because he is not ashamed to call us brothers and has brought us many sons to glory. Ultimately, shalom comes to us in and through the person of Christ. But shalom is dispensed in some measure to us even here and now, imperfectly and in a limited way through various means. For example, food and clothing and shelter cannot keep you alive indefinitely. You can't put enough canned tuna in your cupboard to live forever. You can't order enough clothes off of Amazon, go into town and purchase enough outfits to keep you alive forever. 
You can't get a house so secure and so sturdy that it will preserve you forever. And none of these things can resurrect you either. They can't preserve you indefinitely, nor can they resurrect you. So they're not Christ, and they're not going to bring an ultimate shalom to your body. But they are a means of experiencing some shalom here and now with respect to your body. Likewise, the church cannot keep you alive indefinitely. You can't come to enough services here at CRBC that you will never die. The church cannot resurrect you. So the church is in Christ either. We can't ultimately bring you shalom. And yet the church is a means of experiencing some shalom with respect to your soul even now. Your job brings some shalom to your bank account. Some people have a little more shalom than others. Some people a little less, but you see, when we put it when we put it all together, you have food, you have clothing, you have a job, you have the church, you have faith in Christ. You experience a measure of shalom here and now through various means, through various gifts that God gives you. In our passage tonight, God gave leaders to the people who would proactively make known to them the way in which they must walk and would help them reactively also by resolving disputes when conflicts arose. The judiciary, this judiciary, was an Old Testament institution for God's people given in order to promote shalom among the Old Covenant nation of Israel. Of course, in a limited way, the judges could never wipe away every tear from the eyes of God's people. They could never make all things new. And yet, in the meantime, while we wait for a savior from heaven, it was a gift of God's benevolence to the people of old, designed for some shalom in the meantime. And though we don't live in a theocratic nation-state now, in Barbados in the 21st century, as the Israelites did, they were just basically on the cusp of being constituted a nation-state, God has nevertheless made similar provision for our shalom in the leaders of the church. Pastors and deacons are not an exact parallel of the Old Testament judiciary, I admit it. But aren't we also tasked with proactively making known to the people of God the way in which they must walk? Isn't that basically our job? And reactively dealing with problems among God's people as they arise in our midst? So God had his old covenant people, the people of Israel with whom he entered into the old covenant. And God has his people who are in Christ in the covenant of grace both Old Testament and New, in the New Testament, as the church, we are God's people. And God has given leaders to us as he gave leaders to God's old, his old covenant people. And he's given church leaders to us as a gift of his grace, as a benevolence for our shalom, albeit in a limited way. Brothers and sisters, an able, competent, Godly, 
representative plurality of leaders in the church is a great blessing. Yet we shouldn't see the men in leadership themselves as givers or benefactors, but we should see God as the giver and see God as the benefactor whenever we have such men in our midst. And we should praise Him and we should thank Him for the provision that He has made for some shalom in the meantime while we wait for a Savior from heaven. We know, we know that church leaders aren't going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. If you think I'm going to wipe away every tear from your eyes, you probably don't know me well enough just yet. Because <laughs> I'm going to let you down in various ways. As the years go by, I've already let you down in various ways over these last three years. If you think this church is going to wipe away every tear from your eyes, you're wrong. If you think Jonathan's going to, again, you're wrong. We are not going to. We're not going to make all things new. That happens in and through Christ, ultimately. But in the meantime, while we wait for a Savior from heaven, this is a pretty decent church. And by God's grace, I endeavor to preach the word to you faithfully and to care for your souls and to deal with problems as they come up in the church. Our brother Jonathan labors alongside me. We have Chris in Canada helping out and our deacon in Canada, Bob, who helps out in various ways. This is a half-decent church to be in when we wait for a Savior from heaven. There is some shalom that we experience here. I, as our only local pastor for now, and Jonathan as our only local deacon for now, should not be intimidated then or grasp at retaining power or anything like that if and when God raises up other men in our midst or sends them from the outside to us who can serve as pastors or deacons alongside us. Rather, we should see it as a blessing to us, as these judges were a blessing to Moses in Exodus 18. They were given so Moses didn't wear himself out. If God gives more leaders to the church, I'll take it as a gift to me so that I won't wear myself out, to Jonathan so that he won't wear himself out. And we together, all of us, should see that as a blessing to all of us when God raises up able, godly, and representative pastors and deacons in our midst as the years go by. We as a body will be better cared for. And as Exodus 18.23 says, all this people will go to their place in peace. In other words, our pastoral care needs and our diaconal care needs will be better met. And we won't have to stand around from morning till evening, as it were, in order to receive the care that we need and that we desire. So let us pray for men like this in our midst. And men, I would encourage you to pursue the requisite character and competence in order that you might become a means of answered prayer in due time. Then when God does answer prayer, let us all give thanks to Him, the giver and the benefactor, the provider of shalom, as He who cares for His people and sets under shepherds over His people.
That's the first point of application, and it leads to the second, which is related. We see in this passage the insufficiency of a one-man army mentality and system. God's design is for a plurality of leaders. We see that in both the Old Testament and in the New. As I said a moment ago, present leaders should not dread the possibility of adding additional future leaders, but rather we should desire it. Listen, however, to an exchange between Joshua and Moses in Numbers 11. God had just ordained 70 men to be leaders in Israel alongside Moses, and Joshua complains to Moses because two of these men are prophesying. He says in Numbers eleven twenty-eight, My Lord, Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. This little in interchange is illustrative of the different approaches to more leaders that different people at different churches have. Some seem to have a mentality when a man aspires to leadership or talk arises bringing on another pastor or deacon. Some people seem to have the mentality that Joshua had. Stop them. But we should instead be like Moses, who was desirous to see more men bearing leadership and exercising spiritual gifts under the anointing of the Lord. Again, then, aside from extenuating circumstances, generally men should desire to step into offices in the church to become pastors or deacons in order to bless God's people, help God's people. This involves first a vigorous pursuit of holiness, an acquisition of the necessary competencies, and second, a demonstration of the necessary character and competence. Start with the basics, devotions every day in your personal life, leading your wife, kids if you have them, in family worship, exemplary church attendance, for he who is not faithful in little cannot be expected to be faithful in much, and work of course on the inner life concurrently, as opposed to only doing the necessary outward things. Men who aspire to church leadership should stop sinful habits like pornography, yes, of course, obviously, but also cultivate an inward heart of faithfulness toward their wife. Or if unmarried, cultivate just a chastity and a self-control that befits a single man of God. Cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. Consider where you have erected idols of the heart. Work, comfort, family, hobbies, etc. And tear these things down as Hezekiah tore down the high places, broke the pillars, and cut down the Asherah in 2 Kings 18. And like Hezekiah, hold fast to the Lord. Do not depart from following him, but keep the commandments that the Lord has commanded. This kind of spiritual transformation doesn't happen overnight, just as bodily transformation doesn't happen overnight. Every January, 
Gyms are full of people with New Year's resolutions. But people find out quick that radical change isn't as easy as they might have thought it would be. They figure if they get in to the gym three times a week for a month, their body will look radically different. But they find that, you know, maybe they're down one and a half pounds. And, you know, bench pressing 3% more than they were at the beginning of the month. And they realize it's going to take a lot more work than they may have originally thought. It takes daily discipline, daily training, daily dietary choices, daily priorities, etc., to see progress in physical training. And the Apostle draws a parallel when he writes to Timothy, acknowledging that, yes, bodily training is of some value, but godliness of much more. So he exhorts the young man, therefore, train yourself for godliness, implying that it's going to be the same kind of process. So a man, pursue spiritual biceps, pursue spiritual abs, and the spiritual strength to lift heavy weights. It will take time and loads of discipline, but God has made every provision for your sanctification. No one stays stuck in immaturity or sin in spite of their best effort. Let me repeat that. No one stays stuck in immaturity or sin in spite of their best effort. Simply because God won't help them. That never happens. That never happens ever happens. Though you need God's help, you cannot sanctify yourself. Though you need God's help, you are promised it in Christ Jesus. We can walk in newness of life. Because, as Romans 6, 6 puts it, our old self was crucified with Jesus in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Christian, you are not enslaved to sin. Sanctification takes effort, though, on your part. Unlike justification, which just happens to us. We are passive in justification. We don't justify ourselves, either in whole or in part. It's not like God does 99% of justification and then we justify ourselves 1%. We are passive in justification. It's something that happens to us. But we are active in sanctification, which is why we observe that some people make more progress in sanctification than others. Let's be frank. Is that not the case? You see, legitimate Christians who have been walking with the Lord for years, who have made some progress. Every Christian makes progress. If you don't make any progress, you should wonder if you have a saving relationship with Christ, if the Spirit dwells in you, etc., etc. Every Christian makes some progress, but you see sometimes people are have made hardly any progress after years and years and years of being Christians, whereas others grow in leaps and bounds. Why is this? It's partly due to the fact that sanctification takes effort. 
and then you're active in it. Some fight with more intensity, the good fight of the faith. Some run with more endurance, the race set before us. Some, by the Spirit, mortify sin, as the old writers would say, more viciously than others. So realize you're no longer a slave. And as Romans 6 says, reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. And pray according to the Father's will. Lean on the Spirit and be conformed to the image of God's Son as best as you can. Make it your prayer as it was Robert Murray McShane's. Lord, make me as holy as a pardoned sinner can be. In due time, man, you will see the results. Just as in due time, those who persist in the gym beyond January eventually see the results. And the church will recognize it in due time also. 1 Timothy 5.25 says that good works are conspicuous. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Just like you can't hide bad character forever, you can't hide good character forever either. God will bring your godly character to the fore so that the church will see it. And if the competence is there also, God may just give you as a gift to his people as he gave the judiciary in Exodus 18 as a gift to his people for their shalom. That is what the men of the church ought to pursue as we think about this, God's heart for shalom and God's design for a plurality of leaders. What of the rest of you though? In our church, we believe that the pastorate and diaconate are limited to eligible men. So what of the women? What of the children who have at least, my boys are six going on seven and four, so I mean, it would be probably rare to appoint an 18 year old deacon in our church, I think. So we're talking like 11 years of minimum for my older son. What of those who have no sort of like short-term, medium-term prospects of being pastors or deacons in the church? What of men who are unavailable for church office due to work pressures or something? What about men who are ineligible for reasons other than sanctification issues that can be addressed in time? How does this passage apply to others other than potential church offices? Well, first, I would not acknowledge, I would acknowledge that it doesn't apply as directly as some other passages do. Not all scripture is equally applicable to everyone. When we preach on children's responsibility to obey their parents in the Lord, for example, that would be less applicable to an 85-year-old widow than it would be to an 8-year-old child. But that doesn't mean there's nothing to learn and nothing helpful in it, even for the 85-year-old widow. Tonight, I think we have an instance of the same dynamic. This passage is really not equally applicable to everyone. However, here are a few takeaways for those who are not potential leadership candidates in brief as we close. As I said already, pray for God to raise up able, godly, and representative men to lead our church. 
I think I've already demonstrated that that is God's design and that it would be a blessing to our existing leaders and to the body as a whole. Second, recognize that leadership and followership, if I may, are both necessary in a healthy church. Resolve then, if you are not a church officer, to be a church member who, as Hebrews 13, 17 says, obeys your leaders and submits to them as those who will have to give an account for your soul. And let them do it with joy and not with groaning. Practically, this means cultivating humility and teachability and being enthusiastically and cooperatively participatory, among other things, I'm sure. Third, embrace God's vision for shalom among his people and pull in the same direction as your church leaders. The reason why God gives pastors and deacons to the church is for our shalom. Again, not our ultimate shalom that comes through Christ, but so that we have a measure of shalom as we make our way heavenward. Embrace that that's God's design and intention for us to experience some shalom in the church. Embrace that vision and pull in the same direction as your leaders. Aim to embrace the one another, pardon me, aim to fulfill the one another commandments of Scripture. Seek to help others follow Jesus better. Find ways to minister to the practical needs of others in the church. Check in on someone to encourage them. See how they're doing. Speak the truth to one another. Love one another. Exhort one another, etc., etc. All of this brings about some shalom in the church. And you don't need to be a church officer to do that. And realize that even if the offices of the church are not open to you, there are other spheres in which you can exercise some forms of leadership. Like home, the workplace, or a subset of the church, such as the women's bookstore. And cultivate the necessary ability and competence, or pardon me, and, and character to take on such forms of leadership so that you can lead in a way that blesses those under your care. The kind of leadership we're talking about tonight, able, godly, and representative, which would be the equivalent of fair. This kind of leadership is a blessing to any community, whether the Old Testament community of God's people or the New Testament community of God's people or anywhere else. So in summary, God's design is for the shalom of his people. He's ultimately bringing shalom in and through Christ, but in the meantime, <clears throat> In the meantime, as we await a Savior from heaven, He's graciously benevolently made some provision for some shalom, even in the here and now. One of these ways is by setting able, godly, representative leaders over His people. So let us pray and let us work towards having a plurality of such men in our midst. And let us all cooperate with those men and pull in the same direction as we all pursue what shalom we can here and now until Christ returns.